Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Let's open up with prayer, and then I'll do a handout, and then we'll go. Avinu Malkeinu, our Father, our King, uh, Lord, we are excited about um, the Passover season as it approaches, and the wonderful things that you've promised to show us. Um, your cycles of redemption are clearly seen in the Moedim, as we experience your goodness and mercy over and over again, year after year, as we uh, participate and walk out the festivals. We are certain that they point towards the finished work that Messiah has done on our behalf. And if it were not for the festivals that you've maintained for us in your Torah, then we as humans are prone to forget these things. So we thank you that you've given us these special days. Um, you've given us a weekly Sabbath and then um, the monthly reminders with the Rosh Kodesh. And then finally we have the um, festivals themselves. Thank you for these times. Thank you for drawing us close to yourself. Thank you for the season of deliverance that Passover presents. Challenge us, Father. Shape us, mold us, grow us up. Help us to be better witnesses for you. Um, help us to uh, continue to press into your holiness. And help us to forgive one another as we stumble over one another in this messianic community of ours. Uh, we owe you um, everything that we are. And we give you all the glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. Okay. In case you haven't read the news, Passover is upon us. In case you haven't heard. <laughs> Alright. We are in the last few sections... If you remember from the first lesson, the syllabus of sorts, the, the, the title page to the Galatians study, there's 12 sections. You guys know what I'm talking about? Who's got the entire commentary where you can look on the front page and see the, um, the title? There we go. There are 12 sections on there, yes? All right. Well, we did, we did 10 last week, we're going to do 11 tonight, and we'll, be tw we'll do 12 when we come back. We'll actually hit all 12. But what I want to do, if you guys will allow me, um, last week's recording didn't catch at all, didn't go on tape, nothing. I, I, I was having problems, I guess. So I handed out a commentary last week that was called Summary. Did everyone get it? Who wasn't here last week and didn't get the commentary called Summary? All right. Anyone else need one? Raise your hand. It just says Summary, number 10, Summary. Should be in it if you printed it off the website, but I mean I don't mind giving you another one. Raise your hand if you need one. There you go. It's page fifty-six. There you go. One of each. I'm going to read that. It shouldn't need to be expounded upon as much. Sure. 
I shouldn't need to expound on it as much since we've already talked about it. This is more or less a summary, like any book, a summary of the entire study that we've done thus far. And so this, in my opinion, makes what I, as far as I can reduce it, the shortest version of understanding Paul that I've written. Some people ask me, can you give me like an outline version of what you guys talk about? And I've got a commentary online. Of course, Exegeting Galatians is online, but that's 50 plus pages, and some people can't, some people don't have the time to read that. So then I wrote another commentary down at the bottom. Um, so I call this one Russ Bothering Paul, and that one's still maybe 13 pages long. But it's a kind of a, it, it takes bits and pieces from Galatians and has a little bit of new material, but more or less it's like, you know, summary. But this is a summary in Galatians, so this is about as small as I can get. All right, let's mark Asha there. Here we go. Okay. Asha, do you have the commentary from last week? Do you remember the handout we had last week? Number 10 called Summary? I'm just going to read over that real quick. You've got it? Okay. I'm going to... You found it? Okay, then you can go ahead and get that to her if she needs it. Or just hang on to it and we'll give it to whoever needs it. Let me go ahead and read this for you. Um, let me read it through. I may pause between the paragraphs to see if you guys have questions. But generally speaking, for all of us here in the room, this should be old hat. This should be old stuff. Again... If, we, if this were a Christian setting, and if I were teaching to a, a, a group of you know, people who maybe hit, or not, don't have a background in, in, um, in Hebraic studies or Torah like we're doing now, this would probably be a very challenging uh, few little pages. So, without further ado, let me find it here. And then that's not even what we really are going to study. We're going to study number 11. Torah negative, neutral, positive. So that's why I said let me just go ahead and read through it. And then if you do have questions, uh, uh, by this point, by this, this stage in the game, you should be able to regurgitate this. And that was my goal as a teacher. Really. It was not, uh, it was really, I was really trying to get to the point by this stage to where you're somewhat bored with what I'm about to read with you. All right, read to you. Uh, Mimi, we're on, um, Mimi and David. The handout that I gave last week, I didn't record it. And I wanted to get it for the people who end up getting these, so I'm going to record it now. So I'm just going to read it onto disk. Um, and then if you guys... Uh, I've got more, if you want. You're good for now? You need one? There you are. Anyone else need one? Everyone's good, okay. Let's follow along. I'll read it. I'll pause. If you have questions, I'll entertain the questions. But generally speaking, you shouldn't if you've been with us for this long. Summary. Let us summarize what we have learned concerning the book of Galatians and the situation facing the apostle there. Dovetailing what he composed in Galatians in his letter to Rome, Shaul wrote in 3.28, that's Romans 3.28, obviously, that God considers a person righteous on the grounds of trusting, which has nothing to do with the Torah, or as the KJV renders this verse, works of law. Now on the surface, this seems problematic for my own teachings that consider Torah observance to be of great significance. And I might add, it's problematic for everyone in this room who ends up having discussions with your well-meaning Christian friends and family members about your love for Torah and their disinterest in Torah. I don't think it's really so much that they don't they wouldn't accept Torah if they understood what the way we see it. Why again, why we've been shown the light, I don't have a clue. Other than maybe just to suppose that um, we are in fact held accountable to teach that which we've been shown. Um, but otherwise there, there's no real special reason why we should get it and other people shouldn't. Uh, you know, God doesn't play favorites. At any rate, 
Paul writes basically um, that uh, um, God considers a person righteous on the grounds of trusting, which has nothing to do with the law. And if you read the verse at Romans three twenty eight, I promise you, in just in every version, any version, you read the verse and it goes, "Wow, seems like uh, Torah is out of the picture." All right, on the surface, this seems problematic for my own teachings and yours as well, that consider Torah observance to be of great significance. Yet the problem here is really more a matter of translation than of theology. In other words, it's the way the translators take the words and phrases that Paul uses and render them back into the receptor language so that the, re the readers get the gist of whatever Paul's supposedly saying. And so the translator's job is to try and figure out like we've been doing. The translator's job is to exegete the passage and then give a translation that's true to the... Uh, true to the original work. And I'm not saying that the translators did a bad job in all your major English translations. I think rather they're just working with the bias that already says the Torah is done away with. Therefore, when Paul says something like he says in Romans 3.28, they come to the conclusion that this is just proof that the Torah has been done away with. But what Shaul is really talking about when he employs the Greek phrase ergon namos, and by now that should be like old news, that term, ergon namos. Ergon namos, translated here as works of law, and again, you see the of isn't there. It's really just two Greek words. It's really works law, or work law. Law works, if you want to put it that way. Um, Ergon namos is in actuality a technical phrase that Paul's using. And he uses it because it's the phrase that the Judaisms of his day employed to speak of what? And you can highlight this if you want. The halakha, that is, the proper way in which a Jew is to walk out Torah. That's the technical definition for halakha. If you ask your standard Jewish person today, what is halakha? They'll tell you either one of two things. They'll either say, it's the way that a Jew is to walk out Torah, or they'll say, it's Jewish law. But it mounts to the same thing. Jewish law is derived from the Torah, both oral and written. And therefore, halakha is the definition of that which gets applied practically from the written page to the feet. It's putting feet to the, to the page. Does that make sense? Question? Or, um, yes, oral and written. Jewish people accept the oral Torah as well as written Torah on equal, par equal standing. They did in Paul's day. They do today. They have not, they have not missed one beat. That should not surprise us. Every religion has their oral Torah. Whether they admit it or not, that's on par with the written Torah. Again, a good example is go to a Baptist church and ask them if drinking is permitted. They'll, they'll tell you, oh, no, no. Drinking's not allowed. No, 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 no. Good Christians don't drink. Good Christians don't smoke. I'm not trying to poke fun. But if you ask them where that's found in the Torah, they won't, they won't, there's, nothing, there's nothing written in the Torah that says you can't drink or smoke. But that has become such a tradition ingrained in Baptist circles, I'm quite certain because I was raised Baptist, that is so ingrained within Baptist circles as to be, here's your written Torah, it's to be a tradition that's on par with written Torah of sorts. So much so that they, they will tow that party line. If you're a good Baptist, you don't drink or smoke. And your hair's nice and short. Not getting shaggy like mine. All right, um, so halakha is policy. And it's the proper way in which a Jew is to walk out Torah, according to Paul. Um, and according to the Judaisms that he uh, lived within, lived among. Indeed, the prevailing view of the sages of the first century, because that's what we want to know. When we read Paul's writings, we want to know what is the pulse of his day? What is the prevailing theologies of his day? We don't really want to know what are the prevailing views of our day. Not yet, and at least not when we're studying. We've got to find out what the book meant to them first. So this phrase, Ergon Namas, what does it mean to them first? Not what does it mean to us? Um, 
the prevailing view of the sages of the first century held to the common belief that Israel and Israel alone, that's an exclusive set, you can highlight that as well, Israel and Israel alone shared a place in the world to come. That means they were the only recipients of God's covenant promises. Thus, in this scenario, with this belief, I'm not saying that it was wrong for them to think that way, I'm saying that was their, that was, that was the conclusion that they had come to. Thus, if a non-Jew wished to enter into Hashem's blessings and promises, and of course that means like heaven, right? Such a person had to convert to Judaism first. To be sure, this is one of the primary arguments delineated in the letter to the Galatians. That's it. That last sentence there is the key to unlocking Paul's arguments. That's it. If you don't catch that, either I've wasted my time or you guys have wasted yours. If you don't catch that, you'll not understand Paul. If you don't know that that's what Paul is working against in his letters, then um, you'll forever be in the dark when it comes to understanding Paul. But I'm, I don't want to reduce everything in Paul's letter to this statement. I just want to say that this is a major part of Paul's um, battles that he had to swim up against in the first century. Okay, We don't want to reduce everything to that. All right, But for Shaul, as far as conversion is concerned, no such man-made conversion policy existed in scriptures. It was engineered by man. There's nothing in the, inherently wrong with conversion. There's nothing wrong with becoming a Jew. But when you take something that is neutral, like, like conversion to Judaism, and you wield it in such a way as to make it a prerequisite to get into God's family, then you're misusing that, that rite of passage. When the church takes, for instance, baptism and makes it a prerequisite before God will accept you into the kingdom, that's misuse of baptism. And that's wrong. And there are church groups that exist today, I think, what, Church of Christ? Uh, that say that if you're not baptized in their church, you're not saved. There's nothing in Torah that suggests that. That's, that's, that's errant theology. There's nothing wrong with baptism. Used correctly, it's a good thing. Some churches call it a sacrament. Same with conversion. There's nothing wrong with it. But when, when it gets misused like this, Paul's going to say, uh, 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 that's wrong. All right, so by contrast, Shaul taught most assuredly that Gentiles were grafted into Israel the same way that Avraham was counted as righteous by God in Bereshit, which is Genesis chapter 15. And what is that? Faith in the promised word of the Lord. That's how one gets into Israel. Faith. Faith in God and in his promises. Thus, the phrase works of law has a Hebrew counterpart. Works of law is the English, the Hebrew, I'm sorry, the, the, the English is works of law, the Greek is ergon namas, the Hebrew is ma'aseh Torah. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what means ma'aseh Torah? Glad you asked. The Dead Sea Scrolls use this phrase as well. Okay, The Dead Sea Scrolls were written around the time frame that Paul lived. So to figure out what Paul's talking about, we can turn to extant writings that were exist. Extant means existed in the same time period um, as Paul, uh, within at least within like say a generation. All right, I'm not saying that while Paul was writing, as they were writing theirs, but within generations of one another. Therefore, and and also because they were in the same environment, the same um, piece of real estate, then we can be fairly certain that since Paul was a Jewish writer and a Jewish thinker and wrote in both Hebrew and Greek, and the Dead Sea Scroll writers also had possessions of the Torah, thought in Hebrew, and wrote in Hebrew, probably didn't write in Greek, but at least wrote in Hebrew, 
then if Paul uses a term in his writings that shows up in their writings, we could probably go over their writings and figure out what they're saying means and take that meaning and go back over to Paul and use that meaning in Paul's passages. That's a very safe assumption on our part. And that's exactly what the current authors of the New Paul position have done. They've up until that time, if you take works of law, Ergon Namas, and go back into the Torah itself, the Tanakh, and look for the, the, the corresponding counterphrase, there isn't any. It's almost like Paul took this word up until now. It's almost like Paul took this phrase and invented it. Didn't make, it didn't mean anything. It's like the word internet. 20 years ago, it didn't, well, 50 years ago, it didn't mean anything. What's the internet? If I were able to go back in time and say, hey, do you guys use the internet? They'd go, what the heck are you talking about? What's the internet? It'd be like I'm inventing a phrase. All right. So that's what has tripped up many commentators up to this point. Paul says works of law. And their only conclusion without the help of Dead Sea Scrolls as well as the rabbinic writings was to assume that works of law was equal or tantamount to doing the law. Torah keeping. Torah obedience. Thus when Paul says things like it's not the works of the law that will save you, it's only faith, the translators of today's Bibles, without the help of the Dead Sea Scrolls and without the benefit of the rabbinic writings, have believed that Paul is really combating Torah obedience, and he's pitting Torah obedience against faith. And that doesn't make theological sense from the Torah or from Yeshua or from Paul's point of view. It's bad theology. God would not give Israel the Torah instruct her to keep it only to bring Paul in to uproot that entire program. Plus, if God did give the Torah and told Israel to keep it, but knew that she couldn't, he, wouldn't, he certainly wouldn't punish her for failure to keep it, especially if he, he knew she, he was giving her an impossible standard in the first place. That's a, that's a sadistic God, and we don't serve that type of God. So the Christian theology that says that no one can keep the Torah doesn't understand the Torah. The Christian theology that says God gave the Torah as a millstone around Israel's neck so that they would be weighted down so much that they'd finally cry, Foul! I give up! I give up! I give up! Give me the Messiah! Also doesn't understand the Torah. And the very same Christian theology that supposes that Paul is telling the Galatians to stop keeping Torah and opt for faith instead again doesn't understand the Torah. That's what our exegeting Galatians class has been all about. You get that fact down and you'll have a better conversation with your Christian friends, I promise. Okay, because Paul is the one that they use for their ammunition. You know, you're wearing seat seat, you're keeping kosher, you're going Sabbath, and they, and they say, why are you doing all that? And they say, don't you know, Paul said, and you, the, the lights come on, bing, Paul. As soon as they say, Paul, you should, like, start thinking, have you ever read Galatians and asked them that? And they say, oh, yeah, I read Galatians. Galatians tells me we're not under the law, it's, we're under grace. What does that mean? What does under the law mean? Start decrypting them. All right. So, by contrast, Paul taught most assuredly that Gentiles were grafted in and read that part. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls use this phrase, Ma'asehat Torah, and since the discovery of these manuscripts, which, by the way, is, has only been 12 years, since they decoded the 4QMMT document that they discovered in 1953. There is a big controversy over the Dead Sea Scrolls because of where they found it, who found it, who has the right to decipher it and provide the authoritative... So, and plus, it's so lengthy. It's all fragmented, right? And so they got this huge fragments of pieces, 
and fork UMMT is way down here. And so they started way down here in 1953, and they've been decrypting it, decoding it, and fighting over it. No, it's mine. It's no, it's mine. This is the right translation. It's kind of like the Quran. Who has the right to say the right English translation? They're fighting over it and fighting over it. And here's fork UMMT sitting way out here. And so the years are going by, you know, the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, the 80s. The Messianic movement is born, 90s, 95. Bing, fork UMMT is finally decrypted. Oh, Ma'asehat Torah. Ma'asehat Torah? What is that in Greek? Ergonomos. We've heard that before. Boom, they started going to Paul. That's what's really cool about 4Q MMT. Do a Google search for that if those of you who are more interested. Uh, it's maybe like five pages. It's not very long. Fourth cave, Qumran, huh? Yeah, it's used multiple times. Um, fourth Qumran cave, that's 4Q MMT. Um, um, Maseket Maase HaTorah, MMT. Maseket is just chapter. That's the Aramaic term. Yeah, Maseket. Yeah, yeah. The the Talmud uses the Talmud has thirty nine orders spread out across six tractates. A tractate is called a Maseket. Maseket Maase HaTorah, MMT. All right, so. So we use this, which is really, if you think about it, a rabbinic writing in that sense. It's not a Christian writing. It's not a patristic writing. That's the early church fathers, patristic. It's not a patristic writing. It's pre-early church, yet it doesn't show up in the Talmud because the rabbis didn't claim it. Because the Qumran sect, the Essenes, the Dead Sea sect, they were... They were asceticist. They, had sep they were the monks of their day. They had separated themselves from society and said, you guys are corrupt. And this document is written by the author's name is the Teacher of Righteousness. He was, you know, a, a, an apostle in their, in their group, yes. Yeah, mine also shows that Ma'ase, yeah, acts, acts or actions or works. Now we're trying to see, the, starting to come together. All right, and if we wanted to get, again, if we want to get into the mind of Paul, we have to get into the mind of people who lived in Paul's day. Paul doesn't give us, give us enough information. This document helps us out, but then there's also the corpus of the, the Mishnah, the Mishnah was, was circulating, not in written form, but in oral form. Um, the word Mishnah means repetition. The Mishnah was uh, circulating during Paul's day, and then when the temple was destroyed, the rabbis kind of went into panic mode and said, you know what? We smell, we smell exile on the, on, the, on the horizon. You know, we've seen this song and dance before. We're going to get kicked out sooner or later. So we better start taking our, our clever sayings and putting them together and codifying them, putting them in a book eventually, even though originally they said we're never going to write them down. And so they eventually took all of their writings, and, and they had gotten to a point where, sure enough, 135, 136, the last was the second revolt. You know, 70, 80 was the first one. Temple gets sacked. Second revolt, 135, 136, somewhere around there. Bar Kokhba revolt, that was it. Rome had enough. Get out, you Jews. And they were like, all right, fine, we'll get out. And they left, and they went north to Pela. Um, I'm sorry, to Yavne. Uh, the Messiana Jews went to Pela. <laughs> uh, the, uh, they went to Yavne, which is on the coast by Tyre. Jerusalem's down here. It's north and east. Kind of not too far from modern-day Tel Aviv today. They went up there, and they kind of reconvened, and they pulled out all their clever sayings, and someone by the name of Judah Hanasi, uh, Judah the Prince, which is affectionately just called Rabbi these days, he sat down and said, all right, that's it, let's put it together. And they started putting it together, and the clever sayings came together, and now they're known as the Mishnah. And then from there, it's just the ball kept rolling. So if you read the Mishnah, it, the Mishnah, and here's why it's important to you guys, otherwise you guys are thinking, why do I care? The Mishnah is written by the survivors of the Second Jewish Revolt. The Second Jewish Revolt 
was um, was the straw that broke the camel's back. The second Jewish revolt, the Jewish people are kicked out of Israel. When they got kicked out, actually, let me back up. In 70 AD, when the temple went down, the sect of the Sadducees died out. The Sadducees were the priests. They were blue blood. They were royalty. And their position was maintained by the priestly um, inheritance that they picked up. As one priest died, the next one was born. They were, they were supposed to be. They were corrupt as well, but we won't go there. So um, the, the Pharisees, by comparison, were the politicians. They were just normal people. And because the Sadducees weren't teaching the Torah, which the Torah tells the priests to teach the Torah, because the Sadducees were so corrupt, in fact, they were so corrupt you could buy their office if you had enough money. Um, and you didn't have to even be from the tribe of Levi. So they were so corrupt that the Pharisees, who were the Torah teachers now, said, you know what, since you guys aren't teaching Torah, we will. And so they went to the people, the priests, the Sadducees kind of stayed up in their ivory towers, their they're, they're you know, in lofty places and kind of lorded over people. The Pharisees took it upon themselves to step out, go to the people, go where the people were and take Torah to the people. And they made many proselytes and they were very popular. So we always say, gosh, the Pharisees were bad. No. Compared to the Sadducees, the Pharisees were the good guys. So the Pharisees, the word parush for Pharisee means separated. The Pharisees took um, the Torah and when the temple was destroyed in 70, they kept teaching the people all the way up at least until 135. And then when finally when they were expelled from, from, it, from Jerusalem um, under pains of death by Rome, they were the ones who, re, who took Judaism and reconstituted it. Otherwise, Judaism would be dead. So I'm not saying I completely agree with everything that rabbinic Judaism stands for. But if it weren't for the Pharisees, we'd have no Judaism today as far as we know. There were only two Jewish sects of the multiples that survived the destruction. Do you know what they were? Who they were? I just gave you one of them. The Pharisees. Yeah, the rabbinic Judaism is the Pharisaic Judaism. Guess who were the other Jewish sect that survived? The Messianics. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Okay. Because the Christians had already broken, decided to make their break and not call themselves Jewish anymore. So they were starting a new religion and Rome was adopting it and pretty soon, sure enough, in 200 years, boom, Christianity is the official religion of Rome and Judaism is gone. And they had gone their separate ways. Question. They died out too. Yeah. Nope. They died out too. Yeah. They just didn't have enough numbers. They just disbanded. Yeah. There's there was no one to, there was no cohesion. There was no it was only the Pharisees who were able to go and reconstitute Judaism, and thus rabbinic Judaism. And they even caught, started calling themselves rabbis then and things like that. All right. Back to the text. Oh, no. History is good. It's good to know that part of history. Because that helps us to say, well, how can we think like Paul? Well, the closest we can get is either one of Paul's contemporaries. And with that, we need some writings from those contemporaries. And so if you want to get the, the writings, we either get their view or we get the rabbinic view today. And the Mishnah is available to us. So, all right. Let's see. To be sure... Let me back up. The Dead Sea Scrolls use this phrase as well, and since the discovery of those manuscripts, we have now come to know that it refers to, quote, you can highlight this as well, some of the precepts of the Torah, end quote. Now it says some, because Maseket Ma'aseha Torah, Maseket would be chapter or section, Ma'ase would be actions of the Torah, the section of the actions of the Torah. But I wrote the word SOM there because if you do a Google search for, for QMMT, some of them will translate Maseket as SUM, some of the actions of the Torah. And that's kind of a play on words, but that's accurate as well because it's a distillation. 
kind of like the Ten Commandments are a distillation of the entire 613. You've got 613 commandments, but you can distill them to the Ten Commandments. Think of that same concept. You can take the entire Torah and distill it to whatever the teacher of righteousness says this is what you're supposed to do. So S-U-M of the actions of the Torah or S-O-M-E because it's not all. It's only some. So it goes either way. I opted for the word some in this one. Everybody, did I lose anyone in that? Great. Some of the precepts of the Torah, and this is important as well, as adjudicated by the halakha and by the particular community wielding the most influence. In other words, in Yeshua's day, whichever party had the most influence had the greater halakha. We could think of it like party lines today. Whichever party holds the most influence is the one that has the most seats in office. And thus the president gets elected under those votes. So if the, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm of no, I'm of no, um, doubt that the that our next president will probably be democratic, right? Why? Because the Democratic Party holds the most influence in our country today. We have, you know, it's two partisans, bipartisan. You got Democratic, you got Republic, and so the same thing is going on in a Jewish community. You had Pharisee vying for the power, and then you had Sadducee vying for power, and whichever had the most uh, popularity among the people had the most sway. And so that's what I mean by some of the precepts of the Torah as adjudicated by the halakha and by the particular community wielding those influence. Whoever had the most influence made the rules. To be sure, the halakha that teaches Gentile inclusion only by way of conversion, and, and the inset is read most often as circumcision in Galatians. And again, that's a key. I gave it to you right here in the, in the, in the summary. The key to understanding Galatians is that Paul uses circumcision in this way very often. Um, this halakha was naturally at odds with the true gospel of Gentile inclusion by faith in Yeshua plus nothing. That was why Paul calls it another gospel in Galatians chapter 1. If we understand that quite often Shaul's use of the term circumcision in Galatians is actually shorthand for, quote, the man-made ritual that seeks to turn Gentiles into Jews, unquote, then the letter begins to make more sense hebraically and contextually. And again, give this to your friends and family members who don't understand Paul or think they understand Paul, but they don't understand you, which is proof that they don't understand Paul. Okay. And again, we're trying to be nice. You know, I ask people, have you, why are you keeping the Torah? Well, because God asks us to. Yeah, but Paul told us, uh, Paul told us that the law has been done away with. Do you understand Paul? Yeah, I understand Paul. Paul told me it's done away with. But you don't understand what I'm doing? No, I don't understand why you can be a Christian and keep the Torah. Well, then you really don't understand Paul. That's the bottom line. And, and I'm just trying to be nice. All right. In essence, works of law refer to those group requirements as outlined and delegated by each individual group functioning under the prevailing Judaisms of Paul's day. I say that again. Today, if there are three or four, depending on how you count it, branches of Judaism. Orthodox, conservative, reform, reconstructionist. Going, pulling the pendulum from one side to the other, from right to left or left to right. Um, if you, a Gentile, today want to convert to Judaism, depending on which Judaism you go to, which branch you go to, you sign yourself up to accept their halakha. If you go to Orthodox circles and you convert to Orthodox Judaism, then you are basically saying, I will abide by your standards. I will tow your party line. Conversely, if you keep jumping between the different ones, you'll find their differences in their halakhic output. So that's basically what's going on in Paul's day too. Is if, but they all had something in common, just like they do today. No Gentiles allowed. <laughs> all right. As outlined and delegated, okay, um, Rav Shaul, Apostle Paul, missionary to the Gentiles, had to defend the correct Torah viewpoint in his letters addressed to the churches at Galatia. 
specifically chapter 5, as well as the one in Ephesus. Circumcision, a shorthand way for Paul to say, quote, conversion to Judaism, or becoming a Jew, end quote, was historically misused. But there's no reasons for us to continue in such a misunderstanding, nor is there any reason for the emerging Torah communities, that's us, we're the emerging Torah communities, to shrink back from that which God has clearly given, provided we maintain our primary identity as that of one firmly grounded in Mashiach. To be under, now we're going to move to the next section. We already talked about works of law. We talked about circumcision, works of law. This is really like your comprehensive summary of Paul. The next one, under the law. Under the law, let me just pause without reading from my paper. Under the law is also usually, and we already know this now, under the law is usually interpreted by Christians, and I'm not picking on Christians, you know what I mean when I say that, because I don't, Jews don't interpret under the law for some reason. Under the law is generally interpreted by Christian Bibles to be the same as works of law. Works of law, under the law. They just say it's a clever way of doing the Torah. So, when Paul says anything negative about under the law, they see Paul saying negative things about Torah observance. When Paul says anything negative about works of the, or under the law, works of law, um, they see again the same thing, that Paul's combating Torah observance, which to them is tantamount to legalism. Why would you want to go back to wearing these and keeping kosher and keeping Sabbath? That's legalism. It's, it's tantamount. All right, so. Makes sense? Great. I mean, of course, it's not true, but... All right. To be under the law is a pejorative position. It's, it is pejorative. It's bad. Pejorative is bad. It's thumbs down. Whatever it means, it's bad. To be under the law is a pejorative position originally hinted at all the way back in Deuteronomy. This time, we can go to the Torah. We don't even have to go to 4QMMT. We can go to the Torah to find under the law. Quote, um, there's a reference there to Deuteronomy 29, 19 through 21. I just want to read the middle verse, uh, verse 20. But Adonai will not forgive him. Rather, the anger, and notice I have the highlighted underlined points. Rather, the angry and, and Adonai will not forgive him? Gosh, I thought I could just bring sacrifices and I'm forgiven. Not if your heart's not right. The sacrifices do just not automatically atone. Rather, the anger and jealousy of Adonai will blaze up against that person. Every curse written in this book will be upon him. So if the curse is upon you, couldn't you say that you're under the law? You're under the curse of the law. So that's how we understand the phrase. Adonai will blot his name out from under heaven. So the verse clearly teaches that teaches us that to have, quote, every curse written in this book upon you, end quote, is to be in a state of, quote, not forgiven by Adonai. That's what it says. Adonai will not forgive him viz under condemnation, viz under the law. It's shorthand. It would have been better if Paul would have not simply written, written hupo namas, but rather written hupo namas and then whatever the Greek word is for condemnation, which I can't think of off the top of my head. But he knows the Greek word for condemnation because he uses it in Romans 8.1. So he didn't write under the condemnation of Torah, he just wrote under the law. Because that's the way the Jewish people spoke then, under the law. Only the Spirit of the Holy One writing the Torah on the heart and mind can bring the participant to the intended goal of surrendering to the Mashiach and out from under the curse pronounced in the law. With our natural mind, we, and this we includes Jews and Gentiles, we read, quote, do this and don't do that. And we have a tendency to misunderstand the grace behind the words. Yeshua came to explain the gracious intent of every command by explaining the primary thrust of the Torah in the first place, which is what? Leading its reader the Torah, to a genuine trusting faith in the Messiah found, the, found therein, namely himself. So Yeshua came to explain that the Torah points to him. And that's what he says in numerous places. You know, he, the people walking on the road, and he's, he pulls up next to him and says, you know, what you guys reading there? And they tell him, and he's like, hmm, let me show you how that points to me. 
And then he kind of lambasts some of his fellow leaders for not seeing it. He's like, haven't you read in Moshe? It points to me. And then the prophets point to me. And then the writings point to me. And he just gives all these five witnesses. It's great. That's why he says to the Jewish people, if you would have believed Moses, you'd believe in me. Now watch this. This is a double-edged sword. It's a charge that's leveled first against the Jewish leaders. right? If you would have believed in Moses, you would believe in me. Which says what? They weren't believing in the Torah. Lack of faith. But watch this. Now let's just flip that thing over and bring it over into 21st century terms in Christian churches who say that, that we don't follow the Torah. And yet you believe in Jesus? If you don't believe in Moses, how can you believe in Yeshua? So we can't do away with the Torah. It, just, it works both ways. It's, you, Torah points towards Messiah. I'm sorry. You don't have faith in God, you can't have faith in Messiah. You don't have faith in Messiah, you can't have faith in God. Can't have it e either way. Moreover, grace is needed when sin blinds our eyes to believe that covenant status is granted on the basis of ethnicity, just like the first century Judaisms did, whether natural or achieved. Do you know what I mean when I say natural and achieved? Everybody yes and no? Uh, okay. No, who does, no one misunderstands natural and achieved? Great. Historic Israel of the first century genuinely believed. They, they genuinely did, although incorrectly. But that by virtue of being born Jewish, they were automatically granted covenant status. The key word is automatically. They believed in what I describe as corporate righteousness. There is no such thing as corporate righteousness, at least on a salvific level. There is on somewhat of a behavioral level, but not, not entirely. There's, there, there are pockets of it that are kind of hinted at here and there. But All right, what is more, from their point of view, if someone from non-Jewish stock. Who, who are the people from non-Jewish stock? Gentiles, thank you. If someone from non-Jewish stock wished to join the covenant people, all he or she needed to do was to convert to Judaism. Not place their faith in God. <laughs> Just convert. Hence my use of the terms natural and achieved respectively. Natural, born Jew, achieved, purchased your Judaism. Again, nothing wrong with converting to Judaism. But why? What's the motive? Mo motive. What was driving the Gentiles to want to join the group? It was the lie that they had to be Jewish to be part of the group. And the group is Israel. And God never said you have to be Jewish to be Israel. And that was why the conversion was the wrong answer to their question. The right answer was have faith in God, viz. faith in Messiah, and God will bring you into Israel. That's why Paul was pretty upset. And again, if we can convey that to our Christian brothers and sisters, they'll start to see Paul a little differently, just like we're seeing him tonight. Um, Natural Israelites, those native-born, held to the prevailing theology that Torah was given to maintain the covenant status already required at birth. The ger, which is Hebrew for stranger, alien, etc., Gentile, um, uh, was deemed as someone in the process of becoming a Jew via the vehicle of proselyte conversion. Rav Shaul went to great lengths to refute such teaching in his letters, both to the Romans and to the Galatians. Again, let me pause. He did not go to great lengths to explain to the Gentiles or the Jews that Torah has been done away with now that Jesus has come. That's not what he went to great lengths to do. And unfortunately, that is the hermeneutic that the church holds today. And so because they hold that hermeneutic, they don't understand Paul. And because they misunderstand Paul, they misunderstand us. I'm teaching classes like here not so we can beat up on Christians. I'm teaching classes like this so that we can reconnect with our Christian brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, but I'm sick of fighting. I'd rather us be re reconnected. We both believe in Yeshua. And Yeshua said, they, speaking of the world, will know that you, speaking of us, are my disciples if you do what? 
have loved one another. But we, the Messianics, and we, the Christians, are estranged from one another. And the world looking in on the, from the outside looking at us doesn't see any love. Where's the love? You guys fight. You guys say there's toil. You guys say that's one motivating reason why we should have classes like these. Okay? Another motivating reason is this. Part of the world that I just described includes the synagogue, the Jewish community. An unsaved Jewish Jew is just an unsaved person. You know, we always talk about we've got to go witnessing and witness to people and bring them to Jesus. Yeah, that includes unsaved Jews. So when, when, whole, when whole denominations sign charters that say that we won't, we won't proselytize the Jews, I want to slap them. What do you mean you won't witness to the Jews? Who else is going to witness to them? The Buddhists? No, we got the light, we got the answer, we got to witness to them. Paul witnessed to them. Yeah, we should follow Paul's example. In fact, I think he said, imitate me. Okay, so this unsaved people group includes Jewish people. And when Jewish people looking on the outside, looking in at, at us, see that we, the church, are saying the Torah is done away with, what kind of witness is that sending to the Jewish community? You know, Meshuggah. So, again, <laughs> there are so many reasons why we need to teach proper um, Torah observance. And uh, this is just one of those methods. So, um, to be sure, if we apply this hermeneutic, let me back up because I don't know what this hermeneutic is. Okay, Rav Shaul went to great lengths to refute such a teaching in his letters to both the Romans and the Galatians. To be sure, if we apply this hermeneutic to those letters, instead of adopting a grace versus law, you ever heard that argument, grace versus law, or sometimes just law versus grace? There's no, there's no, there's no contest between law and grace. They complement one another. But again, popular Christian theology, it's one versus the other which is a Greek hermeneutic, by the way. Um, Hebraic would be this or that. I'm sorry, this and that. <laughs> it's law and grace. Um, if we apply this hermeneutic to those letters, instead of adopting a grace versus law hermeneutic, the apostle begins to make more sense theologically and historically. I am convinced, this is me, the writer, I, Ariel, am convinced more now than ever that a fun foundational understanding of Paul's writings must take into account the historical fact that the first century Israel reckoned herself as right standing before Hashem on the basis of ethnicity read as being Jewish alone. You must, fa you must bring that factor into Paul's letters or, or Paul just doesn't make sense. She did not, watch this, she did not feel that keeping the Torah equaled positional forensic righteousness. In other words, she did not think that keeping the Torah got her saved. That's a that's a, that's a picture painted by Luther of sorts, or championed by Luther. I shouldn't pick on Luther and say he's the one that invented it. But it, that's the picture that the church has of both today's Israel and of the first century Israel. If you ask your pastor or Christian average one, um, what do you think Israel's relying on to save her since they don't believe in Jesus? What do you think they think is going to save her? And they'll tell you, oh, she, they, they think that keeping the Torah is going to save them. So, in that, in that scenario, where, where Israel ostensibly thinks that keeping the Torah will save her, and the Christians know that the real answer is Jesus, isn't it theologically sound and true to stand on the side with the Christians there? In that sense, will Torah keeping save you? Yes or no? No. Will believing in Jesus save you? Yes. So the Christians have a theologically sound argument, but they have the wrong argument when it comes to Paul. That's all I'm trying to say. So when we hold studies like this, I have to keep making that differentiation because some people say, but, 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 but. I'm like, no, there's no buts. 
All right, so she did not feel that keeping the Torah equaled positional forensic righteousness. She concluded, albeit incorrectly, that keeping Torah was the vehicle that one used to maintain covenant status already achieved either at birth or by conversion. That's all I had to say on that matter. So, I've got ten minutes to actually just get a little bit of the conclusions done. Most of it's p passages that I don't need to read. So, did I hand you guys the conclusions yet? No. I will hand it to you now. Thank you for allowing me to put that on tape. Online, yes. It is online, uh -huh. but it keeps changing, unfortunately. 95% is the same. Yeah, the page numbers keep changing. So who, who wants one of these? Raise your hand. All right. But yes, if that helps out. So if, if you end up getting extras, give them to your Christian friends and family. <laughs> the people who... I mean, I always look for people who are... I go online, I, I call churches and ask them, are you guys doing studies on Galatians? And I show up. <laughs> Not to cause trouble. I'd show up because I want to see... Um, it, this is what we're what we're, what I'm learning here has really been on the books for the last. What is this night? What is this? 2007. E. P. Sanders wrote his seminal work, uh, Paul and the Law, or Paul and Palestinian Judaism, in 1977, and E. P. Sanders introduced this. And E. P. Sanders is not a messianic Jew, by the way. He he finally came out of the corner and said, "We we the Jews we do not think that keep the Torah saves us." He was kind of really getting upset that Christians were we're painting Judaism that way. And so finally he sat down and said, would you guys please get your authorship correct? That's not what we believed. And some Christian authors went, really? Wow, it isn't? People like Mark Nanos, uh, you know, James D.G. Dunn, N.T. Wright, these people, uh, Tim Haig, these people listened up and said, oh, okay. Well, exactly what do you guys believe in the first century? And he's like, I'm glad you asked. And then he started explaining what, we're, what we come to know now as covenantal gnomism. What? Yeah, we, we yeah we think we were born saved, which even though it's still theologically wrong, right? It, it it at least exonerates the Torah. It takes the Torah out of the picture of being the bad guy, puts it over on the shelf so we can deal with it later, and deals with this issue of identity. So now that we can start looking at that, we can actually start understanding Torah better, which is exactly what I'm going to read right now, since I have eight minutes left. Conclusions. Everybody have it. These are conclusions so far. And the next, the last one is called um, the promise. Conclusions: Torah, negative, neutral, or positive. And I invented these categories. I just try to take what I understand the church to be teaching, and then, and and and, gosh, let me see if I can do this. Um, we have like, This is the one. This is one hundred percent. This box represents one hundred percent of the opinion of Torah in the world, in that sense. Um, and the church has, I'd say, probably. Let's go fifty percent of a of a viewpoint, and then the Messianic movement has, like, say, forty percent of a viewpoint, and then this last little ten percent here is us in this room. The church has a negative view of Torah, and that accounts for about 50% of the 100%. The Messianic movement today, which is somewhat related to this group, because we're still part of the Messianic movement. In other words, the church Messianic movement, but the Messianic movement has to split itself along the 40-10. 40, 
40% of the Messianic movement still has a kind of a neutral view of Torah. I know that sounds odd when you consider that they consider the when they consider the Torah positive, but it's fueled by David Stern's version, which if we read his commentaries, we'll figure out that it's kind of neutral. But now the new, newest perspective is actually that the Torah is positive, and that's still a smaller amount. You, us in this room, after going through Ariel's Galatians class, are in this 10%. So that's what I'm trying to convey in this little breakdown of 50, 40, 10. Again, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on this. This is just my view as I take kind of... Uh, I ask questions. How else are you going to get answers? Our opinions of Paul and his letters should first and foremost be influenced by the raw data found within the scriptures themselves. Is that true or not? Is that, is that fair that we should, when we say, well, Paul thought the law was bad, and then we go back and read the law and it talks about it, how the law is pretty good, and then we think, how can Paul think the law was bad? So, um, our opinion should be influenced by the raw data. Our opinions of Paul and his view, I'm sorry, should be... Um, influenced by the raw data found within the scriptures. Since it only stands to reason that historically, when his letters were penned, the Tanakh, a.k.a. the Old Testament, was the only inspired corpus of literature available to him. So if Paul had a negative view of Torah, where did he get it? That's my question. Obviously, it's a rhetorical question, because he didn't have that opinion. Thus, it is reasonable to presume that Paul would also expect his readers, particularly his Jewish ones, to hold similar views of the Tanakh. And just what view should that be? Should it be one... Negative, as in the prevailing Christian view that the Torah was given merely to contain and limit transgressions so that man did not become excessively sinful. That's more or less the, the, the Christian view of Torah. Is it too neutral, as in the Messianic Jewish view? And when I say, again, Messianic Jewish view, kind of like students of David Stern. I'm not picking on David Stern. I'm just saying with the... With the David Stern wrote pre-4QMMT. David Stern put out his stuff in the 80s. 4QMMT, 90s. David Stern was working with the, with the handicap. Neutral, as in the Messianic Jewish view, that Torah was given to expose sin. Notice how it's slightly different than contain and limit sin. Co- expose sin for what it really was, namely the, tr- the transgression of God's perfect standard of holiness. Or three, positive, as in recent Pauline authorship, that Torah was given to provide the means by which an existing covenant member might have his sins covered. And the word covered there is not up- updated yet. I really want to say wiped clean. I've, I'm, I'm updating my, my view of the term kafar recently. So if you want to uh, cross out the word covered and write the phrase wiped clean. And if you don't understand that, download my commentary, the Vaikra, and you will. Um, that the Torah was given to provide the, an existing covenant member who might have his sins wiped clean with an ultimate view towards the coming eternal sacrifice Yeshua, the prophet, son, Messiah. Now, I'm only going to read the next paragraph, and then I'll, I won't read the verses. You guys can read the verses on your own. With these options in mind, let us draw our conclusions of Galatians by examining what the Torah has to say for itself. We'll let the Torah speak. Followed by a few quotations from Paul. Drawing from the biblical principle of presenting two or three witnesses to strengthen an argument, two or three out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, I will cite two from the five books of Moshe, two from the prophets, and two from the writings. In other words, two from the Tanakh, two from each parts of the Tanakh. That's six total. We will then allow these Tanakh witnesses to either betray Paul's statement about the law or to pale in comparison to his conclusion in Galatians so that no foul play accusations may be leveled because I know people say, oh, fine. Yeah, that sounds nice, R.L., but you quoted from the Apostolic Scriptures. So that no foul play accusations can be leveled when I made this uh, chart. In my choice of verses from the Humash, 
I selected only verses that refer to the written Torah as it pertains to its historical revelation, viz. Sinai, post-Avraham, post-Egyptian Exodus. In other words, I picked verses that specifically talked about the Torah as it's in its writings. As, as opposed to, like, for instance, there are verses that talked about how the Abraham kept God's laws, and the Hebrew word is Torot, the plural for Torah. But we know it's not the written version that, per se, that we're understanding. I, in other words, the verses I chose all have the written version in mind. I'm trying to pull a Paul. I'm trying to, so when Paul says the Torah says, and then he quotes Genesis, technically that's outside the scope of the written Torah. It's in the historical narrative that we know now as Torah. But it's historical narrative that predates written Torah. So I chose only verses that are within the scope of the Torah already having been written down. So, and then from there you can read my conclusions. But let me just say this little thing here. You've all heard me talk about how that there's um, kind of three levels where we're at now. One, two... Three, and the first level is no Torah, right? You guys, you guys, who hasn't heard this before? You guys have all heard this? All right, no Torah is kind of like the church's level of understanding. No Torah means, if I ask you, do you just answer truthfully. Um, do you respect Torah? You like Torah? You keep it? Try to keep it? Great. So, um, so as a Christian, I'm a Christian asking you, as a Christian, why would you want to keep the Torah? It's been done away with. There's no right way to keep Torah. There's no wrong way to keep Torah in my view as a Christian. There's simply no Torah. In other words, if I say, why are you keeping Torah? And I'm assuming that you're a legalist, and you go, oh no, I keep it because I love God. It's my demonstration of my love for God. Then I've suddenly been challenged because for all my life I've been thought that Torah equals legalism. That's why there's no Torah. No Torah really means no legalism. So when you tell me you're doing Torah, I'm confused as a Christian because I've always equated Torah with legalism. But you have now just introduced something called Good, bad Torah to me. Good Torah is keeping Torah for the right reason. Not that Torah itself is good or bad. The men, you know, good Torah would be what we all do in this room, at least I hope we do. Bad Torah would be legalism. What the church calls doing Torah. Thus their position is no Torah. So good Torah, bad Torah, is what we kind of have to explain to the church. We don't keep the Torah to become saved. We keep the Torah because we're saved. That's what I call good Torah, bad Torah. David Stern kind of engineered that view for the church in the 80s when he wrote and published his, the book that you have right there. But really, if we read that into Paul, we're still missing Paul's argument. It's not even about no Torah. It's not about good Torah, bad Torah. What Paul's really about is what? Right. That's it. Identity. So in my little chart, the church is more or less, again, this kind of corresponds to this. The church is, has a negative view of Torah because they're still at the level one understanding that there's no way you, anyone can keep the Torah once you're saved. The Messianic movement is still primarily in this view of 40% of good Torah, bad Torah. Most Messianic groups are still influenced by David Stern's works. Again, David Stern, I, I was a student of David Stern myself. I still think he's great material. I just wish maybe he would continue it and push it further to this level. So this level is kind of like the, uh, the 40% up there. This is the kind of the 50%. Actually, with this 50%, it's nearly 100% of their group. But in the overall picture, they account for about 50% of us. And then this is about the 10%. The 10% that now know that Paul's really talking about identity. So that's does that kind of make sense somewhat in the chart? What we're learning is this. We're kind of at level three. So when we talk to our Christian brothers and sisters, we've got to understand that they're not even at level two understanding. That's why they, we have the dialogue that we do. Why are you guys keeping Torah? 
I mean, didn't you read Galatians? And then we know instantly, oh, you're thinking Galatians has to do with Torah. It doesn't. It has to do with identity. And it's a hard leap from here to here. It's nearly impossible. So help your friends and family members out. Cut them some slack. Last question. Just the Sabbath. It's, it's the visible representation, representations of covenant membership. It's what was appropriately termed the badges. Right? The badges are worn on the outside of the, of the jacket. But they don't keep the rest. Yeah, it's an interesting position. Let me dismiss you, and then if you want to midrash and stuff, you're welcome to, but uh, I'll give the general dismissal in case Mark pokes his head in there, okay? Let's pray. Abba, we bless your name, and we know that you are faithful to your word. We know that your spirit has provided for us the answers that we have arrived at this evening. And so we thank you for uh, your faithfulness and your goodness and your mercy as it's been extended towards us over and over again. We know we don't deserve it. We bless you, Father, for giving us uh, a challenging study, and we continue to press in even as the Passover season is upon us. Help us to uh, continue to be witnesses for you, um, drawing all men close to you, glorifying your name, and, and seeing the Messiah, Yeshua, for who he is, very God veiled in flesh. We thank you, Lord, for this awesome responsibility that you have placed in our lap, and so we ask that you will empower us to walk it out. Bless you, Father, for all that you do in this community. We love you, Lord. In Yeshua's name. Amen. All right. Um, yeah, thank you. No class next week. The week after that, for those students and then for everyone else, last class of the semester, we'll hit number 12, the, um, the promise. There's no none next week. Uh, actually, there's none, I think, for two weeks. There's none next week, I know for sure. There's none for two weeks. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>